I remember reading the news story, 2013, of a man, Michael Madison, who was arrested for the murder of three women whose bodies were found in his house and on his property. And the ensuing story in 2016, as his trial was coming to a conclusion, a man named Van Terry was giving testimony of the impact that this man's actions have had against his own family in the death of his daughter. And as Van Terry shared this testimony of the pain and the sorrow that they faced as a family, he turned to look Michael Madison in the face. And in that moment, Madison smirked. And Van Terry lost it. He leapt over the table of the defense to take action against this man who murdered his daughter. Now, police separated them. He was dismissed from the courtroom. And later in an interview, he was asked, what did you intend to do? He said, I wanted to jump over that table and break that man's jaw so he could never smile at my pain again. He wanted justice, right? He, he wanted vengeance for the pain and the suffering that he felt. He wanted to jump over that table and, and resolve what he felt in his own heart as something that felt, fell short of being right. But even in that moment, Van Terry couldn't get the revenge. He, he couldn't get the justice that he wanted in that moment. He was unable to. He had to trust the due process of the courts who did convict this man of murder. But in that moment, it just didn't seem like enough. It felt like Madison got away with wickedness and with evil. And I think often in our own lives, though not to the extent that Van Terry and his family faced, we see wickedness and evil, pain in this world that we cannot provide the justice that we think is due. We can't resolve it. We can't fix it. Oh, it's frustrating. It causes us to ask, when is justice ever going to happen? When is wickedness going to be resolved? And so when we see wickedness around us and we long for justice, we ask, is there a just response to the wickedness of this world? On our text today, I trust that we're actually going to see that even though wickedness rages, that justice actually rules. And I want us to walk away with this thought in our mind today, that the wicked rage, but justice rules. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 94. Psalm 94, if you're using the Pew Bible, this is on page 524. And you'll be really helped if you follow along in the text today because we're going to walk through this entire psalm and it'll be really helpful for you to see the language that's being used and what's being communicated. This psalm is given really without any context, without uh, any assistance in uh, the the purpose for it being written. Uh, And yet we can recognize uh, through the language that's used the difficulty that the psalmist 
who is calling a nation to sing this psalm, uh, the, the difficulty that they are facing in the attack of the wicked, in the, in the evident face of a lack of justice. Most people assume that Psalm 93 and Psalm 94 go together. Psalm 94 proclaiming God's reign. I had the privilege to preach that last year. And now to consider God's justice in the face of wickedness. This psalm is broken into six stanzas, and that's actually how I'm going to walk through the psalm. But uh, each, each stanza, with, uh, except for the first one, uh, is divided into four verses. The first one is kind of an intro. It's three verses. The rest of the stanzas are four. And we're going to see how the psalmist calls us to consider God's justice in the face of wickedness as we walk through this. One of the things I want to call to your attention to now is we're going to see words that are used for the purpose of repetition that will call us to emphasize, to further dig into the meaning and the purpose of the statements that are used here. So I'll try to point those out as we go through the psalm. But we're really going to look at two ideas and divide this psalm in half. These two ideas are going to be responses to this big idea that I've given, the wicked rage but justice rules, is kind of a, a theological statement. But what are we called to do? What is our response? And so our two points in the first half of this psalm, we're going to see that we should cry out to God. And in the second half of the psalm, we're going to see that we are joyfully confident in God. Because we need to cry out to God when the wicked rage. We need to be joyfully confident in God because his justice rules. So look with me as I read verses 1 through 11. Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people. They oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. Pay attention, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? Can the one who shaped the ear not hear? The one who formed the eye not see? The one who instructs nations? The one who teaches mankind knowledge? Does he not discipline? The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind. They are futile. Well, here in the first half of this psalm, we're going to think about our first point, that we should cry out to God. And in the first stanza, we recognize that the psalmist is expressing concern over the wicked. Stanza one does serve as a bit of an intro, as I mentioned, here calling our attention to a description of who God is, and then a description of who the wicked are. Lord, God of vengeance. God of vengeance. What a way to start a psalm. I'm guessing for many of us, a term that is striking. How can vengeance and God be the same? One, how can this be a description of who God is? I think it's important for us to settle on this idea and, and think well of What is meant by the idea of vengeance? Because for you and I, in our human understanding, and honestly what we feel in our own hearts is often the desire for revenge, to give blow for blow, that I would serve back to the person who has wronged me something that is 
equally as harsh to them, that they would feel my pain. Uh, But here in this idea of vengeance with God, God can't be that type of God who's just exchanging blow for blow to the wicked. Now, God is actually defined in verse 2. Rise up, judge of the earth. Uh, Now we're given a context for what God's vengeance looks like. God's vengeance is very much unlike ours. No, he is not rash. He is not just delivering a blow just to put somebody in their place to make them feel pain. No, true vengeance before God is God's work of justice. God's work of bringing about a punishment of retribution for wrongs committed. It is the just result of wrongs committed against God and God's people. And so we see a difference between God's vengeance and ours. And I trust as we go throughout this psalm, you'll be more and more comfortable with this idea of the God of vengeance. To recognize his good work as the judge of the earth. But I want you to recognize the words that are used here that I think are so striking. Not just God of vengeance, but that he would shine. What a strange word to use in one sense, that vengeance would shine. Well, for us to understand the idea of something that's shining bright, that calls our attention, something that's beautiful, that deserves our kind of awe, that deserves honor. Well, the God of vengeance himself would shine bright into the darkness of wickedness that his judgment would be seen and that people would rejoice and stand in awe of him as the judge. But this emphasized by the idea of rising up in verse 2, that he would be the judge who would rise up above the wicked. In my mind, as I've watched many Marvel movies with my kids recently, is, is the superhero who's smashed with, you know, an entire building, because that's realistic. And in the rubble and the dust, your first instinct is, everyone lost, and this is the worst thing ever. And then the superhero rises up. He rises up out of that dust. He's seen standing head and shoulders above those that he's about to defeat. And everyone rejoices, because he is rising up. He is not dead. He is not gone. Here to see this idea of the one who is shining brightly, who has risen up, really compels us to think about the idea of the sun shining through. This glorious brightness of who God is shining down as the judge of earth onto the people who are rebelling against him. That he would be the one to repay the proud what they deserve. To give them the just judgment of their pride. And so the psalmist ends this first stanza by leaving us with the question that I asked earlier. How long will the wicked? How long will the wicked celebrate? God, if you are the judge, if you are the God of vengeance, how long are you going to let wickedness prevail? How long will you let the proud celebrate? 
Well, now in stanza two, the psalmist is actually going to provide a further description of the wicked. Here he goes on to describe the wicked as those who pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Oh, we get a quick connection right here, recognizing a word that's previously been used. Verse two, the proud is now defined in verse four as those who use arrogant words, who are evildoers that are boasting before God. Oh, it's not just that they do wickedness and they're proud of that. No, they're boasting before God. They are using arrogant words to him. And that is further described in verses 5, 6, and 7. These people are crushing God's people, his heritage. They kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless, those who are innocent, who cannot defend themselves. That is the description of their wickedness. But as if that is not bad enough, They say to the Lord, uh, he doesn't see it. The God of Jacob, he doesn't pay attention. This is the depth of their pride and their arrogance. To speak against God as if he doesn't see their wickedness, as if they're just getting away with it, as if he is not going to respond. And I wonder for you, whatever you might be facing in this life, whatever you observe happening around this world, of wickedness, of evil, if you have had this thought, does God even see this? Is he even going to respond? Is he going to pay attention to what's happening? This is the reality of the world that we live in, is we do not always see the justice that we think is deserved. We do not see the justice that we want, that we cry out for. And especially when there's difficulty that comes upon the household of God's people, we want to see justice. Michael Lawrence spent some time on this in his sermon last week, so I won't revisit those thoughts of of the suffering that is brought against God's people. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon in Esther 3 to be encouraged in your heart of how God responds to injustice towards his people. But here to see that the innocent are harmed and taken advantage of. And these people boast. I trust that you're not desensitized to the wicked and the evil of this world. I mean, honestly, it can be through video games and movies and constant news of evil happening that we just say, yep, keeps happening. I don't expect us to be surprised by it. It's no surprise that it happens, but do we recognize it for the evil that it is? And to say that is wickedness. Will God come against this? Will God judge this wickedness? Don't become complacent with the wickedness in this world. But now the psalmist turns in his third stanza, not just to describe the wicked, but to rebuke them. And in verse 8, he says, pay attention, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? Oh, here's a wonderful turn of words. To go from those who have called out to God saying, God doesn't pay attention. He's not listening. To the psalmist saying, now it's your turn to be the ones who need to pay attention. You're the one that needs to listen. You stupid people. Pay attention. 
And he goes on to describe the creator. The one who created the ear, doesn't he hear what's going on? The one who created the eye, doesn't he see what's happening? How foolish to think that you can get away with the crimes and the violence that you're doing. He sees and he hears and he knows. And even more so, he's the one who instructs the nations. He brings discipline upon mankind. He is teaching them knowledge of what is good and evil. There is judgment coming for these people who speak so arrogantly against God. And the call for them to pay attention. The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind, that they are futile. For us to be assured that we need to pay attention. It's easy to look at this text and say, yeah, those stupid people, yeah, them, they need to pay attention. And perhaps realizing I don't want to be the stupid people, but maybe I should be aware that I need to check my own heart that I would not be one of these people who are foolish, who have forgotten God's ever-watching eye, his ever-listening ear. Both to my own sin, that I would be very aware of my own complacency and the sin in my own heart, that I would call attention to the fact that God sees and he hears and he knows and is one who will discipline but also to recognize that God hasn't ignored the evil of this world. It is not unknown to him. He's the one that brings instruction to the nations, the one who teaches them, who brings discipline. And we realize that the foolish, the ones who have foolish thoughts and are futile in their thinking, they will not prevail. They will not go against God's justice They cannot defeat the judge who will shine brightly. And so they are called to pay attention to the creator. And so here the psalmist is crying out. And for us, we should cry out when we see wickedness. To not be comfortable with it, to not just dismiss it, but to see evil and wickedness and to cry out to God. And I think particularly two ways that we can emphasize the way that we cry out to God in our own prayer life. You know, I could take time to expound on the need to be often in prayer and to have a mindset of prayer. And I trust that you all know that as you read God's word. But here to press into how we pray. One is to pray alert to who you're praying to. The God of the universe, the judge who hears and sees. That's who we pray to. Do you take that mentality into your prayer life? Are you alert to who God is? Who you're talking to? The creator of the universe that he hears you? And in that it compels me in my prayer, secondly, to be humble. Oh, that I'm not coming to God accusing him of not listening? accusing him of not handling my situation right, but coming to God in humility, knowing that God hears my prayer, that God hears my cry, and he is not unaware of the pain and the suffering that I face. He is not unaware of the wicked. 
And so I want to encourage you this week as you spend time in prayer, remember, who am I praying to? And am I humble in my way that I approach the Lord in prayer? Recognizing that he rules and reigns and that he is the judge. And so as we see wickedness raging around us, we take this opportunity to cry out to God, to not ignore it, to not act as if God doesn't hear us, but to cry out to him and ask him to be at work, to be the judge. And as wickedness rages, we remember in the second half of this psalm that justice rules. Justice rules. And therefore, we can be joyfully confident in who God is. So secondly, be joyfully confident in God. Verses 12 through 23. Let's look at these verses. Listen as I read them. Lord, how happy is anyone you discipline and teach from your law to give him relief from troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. For the administration of justice will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I'm filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. He will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. So here we see the turn of the psalmist from focusing on really this description and the work of the wicked and calling God to be at action to a a confidence in who God is and what he has already done. And so in the fourth stanza, we recognize that there's this opportunity to be happy in discipline, that there is a blessing of God's discipline. Here is another use of terminology that's further described. If you remember in stanza three, God is the one who hears and sees, and he is going to bring discipline on the nations. And yet here in verse 12, there is a discipline that is a happy discipline. How do we think about that turn in the idea of discipline? Really going from what we should consider a punitive discipline, bringing punishment to a corrective discipline that brings correction and teaching. Even as we see in verse 12, it is discipline that we are taught from the law. Now we see that God's word comes alongside of this correction. The discipline is not just punishment for sin. No, it is a correction, a a writing our thinking when we are wrong, to bring us in line with the law, to be able to learn from God's word how we should live. And so we are blessed when we receive that type of discipline. What a wonderful turn of phrase from those who fear God's discipline and judgment to those who are happy because they are being disciplined to draw closer to God. 
This type of dis- discipline in our own hearts that is corrective is a discipline that calls us to account of our sin, of our wrong thinking, of where we have misunderstood the word, of where we have lived out a false identity of one who is not the child of God. No, we are disciplined to look more like our father. It is a joyful and a good thing. And I can be rejoicing and happy and and blessed knowing that I am not under the wrath of God, but under the instruction of God. And that in and of itself gives me relief in troubled times. Verse 13. It gives him relief from troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. In that instructive discipline that is correcting me, I am recognizing if God is judging the wicked in in that punitive discipline, how much more can I rejoice that he is correcting me? And as I recognize the correction in my own life, as I draw closer to God, I can rejoice that that punishment isn't on me. And that there is punishment waiting, that the pit is being dug for the wicked. Do you see how God's faithful work in our own hearts of convicting of convicting us of sin, of using the body of the church to call us into accountability, to use the preaching of his word, the study of his word, time and prayer, our spiritual disciplines to call us back to God, is evidence of God's faithfulness and kindness to you that he has not forgotten humanity. And in his mercy and grace to you and me, in the way that discipline is lived out, I can rejoice that I know God is going to bring about justice to the wicked. And this is affirmed in verse 14. The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. Does that language remind you all the way back to verse 5? where the people and the heritage are being crushed and oppressed, here we have confidence that God has not left us. He is with his people. And in verse 15, he has brought about the administration of justice. It will again be righteous. So often we see injustices in this world and we seek for that justice and we know in righteousness, God will be just. It is because he is righteous. It is because he is holy. He can be no other. And in his holiness, as he draws us back to himself, we rejoice that he has not abandoned us. He continues to discipline us and instruct us and grow us to be more like him. And we see his justice and righteousness. The upright in heart are the ones who follow him. They follow after this justice and righteousness. And so I want to encourage you to not take lightly the discipline that the Lord brings into your life. Can you count it as a blessing? To be happy that God has not forgotten you, has not forgotten his people, he has not abandoned you, but is faithful to call us back. It's really difficult to receive discipline from others, to hear instruction, to hear correction through God's word and through the lives of those that we live with, to be called back to faithfulness and to righteousness. And yet we need that work in our heart because it reminds us that God has not abandoned us.
And so that discipline is a happy and blessed thing. But in stanza five, we see actually it becomes a very joyful thing to think on who God is. We see the psalmist describing joy in God's love. Verse 16, who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. Uh, Here to answer his own question. Who's going to stand up for me? I know who. The one who hasn't abandoned me. The one that I know is my helper. Because he has kept me from death. The one that I know has kept my foot from slipping because of his faithful love. And therefore my heart is filled with comfort and joy because I know that he cares for me when I face fears, when I face wickedness against me. And so here's a very joyful moment to see kind of this image of starting with a blessing and happiness of discipline and ending with the comfort of joy that God has done a work, that he has worked in our lives to be our helper, to be the one who has been that support for our slipping foot, to be the one who cares for us in our deepest need and comfort us. This brings joy. Oh, to be able to rejoice in the confidence that I have in God's work. And I just want to call your attention to how striking this stanza is to the title that we were given in the intro of the first stanza. Because often in our world, and perhaps even in your own life, it's easy to get too focused on God, the God of vengeance alone, and that light shining brightly that he will bring judgment and justice to the God of love that is shining brightly to bring love and care for his people. And too often in our world, we think about those two bright shining lights of God as two opposing things. And when we focus on one above the other in any circumstance, we create a God who is not the God of the Bible. Because what is glorious and wonderful about the God of the Bible is that those two lights come together into one glorious light at the cross, where there is both vengeance against wickedness and there is love. And there the glory of God shines brighter than anywhere else at the cross of Jesus Christ, who is a man like us, but without sin. And he went to that cross and died for the wickedness and sin of this world, of you and me. And God's wrath against sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ. Vengeance was served. Justice was served. The God who is the judge of the earth shone brightly when Jesus Christ, the innocent lamb, died. But he rose from the dead, In that moment, displaying his love for mankind that he would suffer and die and bring about salvation for us. For those who would repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ to save them, he has promised to give new and abundant life. Oh, that the glory of Jesus Christ would shine brightly 
not just in his love and not just in his punishment of sin, but both come together in the person of Jesus Christ. My friend, if you are here this morning and and you've never heard this message or you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, oh, today is the day to put your faith in Christ. That you don't have to suffer under the penalty of sin. You don't have to suffer that judgment from the judge of the whole earth because it was poured out on Jesus. And if you trust in him and repent of your sin and you are found in Jesus Christ, there's peace and joy in the comfort that God brings. And so I'd love to talk to you today. If you haven't trusted in Christ, I would love to chat with you and tell you what that looks like, how that's lived out in somebody's life. Or talk to somebody that you came with. Talk to anyone in here. You can ask them. They would love to share this message with you. The joy and comfort of God's love displayed on the cross where justice was served. And so we're given hope here. Believer to recognize that in the face of the wrongs of this world, in the face of wickedness, justice does rule. It was poured out on the cross. God hasn't forgotten And it gives us hope looking forward to that day when judgment will finally be delivered in the final day when all wrongs will be made right. When all wrongs will be punished. Because God has already displayed that this is the God that he has promised to be and the God that he is. His work on the cross. And so we take joy. We take hope even in the face of wickedness, knowing that the final day of judgment is yet to come. God has not forgotten his people. No matter what we face, he has given us what we most need in Jesus Christ. And so in our final stanza, we see that there is confidence in God's reign. Verse 20, can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Oh, here's the question of, can God as the holy judge, the righteous one, who saves his people, can he be aligned with a wicked throne, with wicked rulers? No, because they're against those who are righteous. They're against those who are innocent. God can't be allied with that. No, his throne is much different. His throne is holy, and it is righteous, and it is glorious. And so the psalmist takes confidence in that. You see that in in verse 22, but the Lord is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. Oh, now he has this firm foundation in which to stand as he proclaims, no, I know that God is not aligned with injustice. He is not aligned with the unrighteous and the wicked. No, his throne is is holy and just, and, and therefore I have confidence that he is my protection. He is my place of refuge in which I can rest and stand with confidence against the wickedness of this world. And so he takes great confidence into this difficulty of life. I wonder where your confidence lies tomorrow morning when you wake up. 
I want to be really clear. If your confidence is in the throne, in the thrones of this world, you are sadly mistaken. See, the rulers and the thrones of this world, it doesn't matter who they are and in what throne they sit, they are not the holy God who is the judge of this world. And they will fail in what they are doing in the end. There is no throne righteous enough. There is no ruler righteous enough. The righteous ruler, he already came. And he exists. And it's Jesus. It is not your favorite political party or person in politics that will save you. It is Jesus Christ alone. And so don't you dare put your confidence in another human being in this world as if they're going to right the wrongs of this world, as if they're going to correct the wickedness of this world and resolve it all. There is only one that will do that, and it is Jesus Christ, the God of this world. And so we put our confidence in him, not in the rulers of this world. And that means tomorrow morning I can wake up and no matter what news feed shows up on Twitter, on my news page, whatever journal you read, news source, whatever terrible news you might get, no, there is confidence and joy that God rules and reigns, that he is the one who's not going to let you slip. He is the one who will comfort you. He is your rock and your solid foundation. And so we can approach those things and be okay that the world isn't right, that it is broken, that there is pain and suffering and fear, and yet I can take hope and joy in Jesus and continue to trust him. It doesn't mean those days won't be hard. It doesn't mean there won't be days of crying and sorrow and pain. But it reminds me I have a place to go back to for that solid foundation, to stand in confidence that I don't put my hope and my trust in the things of this world and the people of this world. And so when wickedness attacks me, which could be a spiritual battle, could be legitimate physical harm that comes against you, it could be emotional battles. Oh, that you wouldn't put your hope in yourself, something else in this world that you think might help you get through. Oh, that you would rest confident that God is at work. And so when that wickedness faces you tomorrow, and the wickedness of this world is still around, you address it, you confront it, and you call out to God. You recognize wickedness for what it is. Oh, but you take joyful confidence that God, the just judge, rules and reigns. Even when wickedness is still raging, uh, we have joy that justice rules. It gives us strength and confidence for our day. So I want us to end this morning. I'm not actually going to pray right now. I want us to sing. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up here because we're going to sing a hymn as kind of our conclusion to this sermon. Only a holy God. And here's why I want us to sing this together. Because in response to this text of a God who promises to destroy the wicked and care for his people, 
the song that we're going to sing will remind us of our holy God. That we'll sing together of the one to whom every knee will bow down. The one whose splendor outshines the sun, whose majesty rules with justice, whose glory consumes like fire and his power can raise the dead, whose name is undefeated. This is the holy God who has rescued us from our own falling. Oh, because we can't save ourselves. No, he offered his only son so we can trust in him. And so even when the wicked rage, we take joy that God's justice rules.